On this episode of The Problem with Circles, a discussion of the economics of education, I'm joined by Kostas McGear, professor of economics at Yale University. He focuses on development economics and specifically researches labor markets, welfare programs, and the economics of family. Additionally, he's done extensive research on human capital and early childhood development, which is why I was so lucky to speak with him. Professor McGear and I met to discuss education and economics in early December. We talked for about an hour, although the podcast is shorter, and were rudely interrupted by the free Zoom limits. However, I think we pretty much covered all of what I wanted to discuss, if not more. I was beyond grateful to converse with him. It was such a wonderful first interview. I hope to speak with him again soon. Hello. Hi, how are you doing? Hi, I'm good. How are you? Okay. Thank you so much for meeting me. I really do appreciate it. Today, I'd mostly like to talk about your work with early childhood development interventions, just like going over sort of what that means, also like how you execute them in different countries, and then how that could manifest in the US specifically, because that's the country that I'm focusing on. Yeah, Yeah. well, um, the key issue is that children from deprived backgrounds all over the world, it doesn't have to be a developing country, build up developmental deficits. And uh, that is mainly because there is uh, a lack of engagement and lack of stimulation by parents in these environments for various reasons that we don't completely understand. But, you know, they might, it might have to do with uh, the mental health issues that, uh, that poverty is associated with. They might have to do with uh, cultural issues. They might have to do with uh, overload of uh, time and distraction, uh, you know, for basically survival purposes. Uh, so, so, so there's a very well-established uh, gradient between cognition and wealth that increases with the age of the of the child. So, so it's not it's not just uh, some kind of uh, fixed difference that arises at, at birth, where there is already a difference, and that's probably attributable to difference in nutrition, differences in uh, in uh, healthy behaviors like, uh, you know, smoking, uh, drinking, things like that. Um, so, so, the, so, the, so the, this creates an intergenerational link for poverty, right? Because, you know, uh, low-income parents, poor parents, um, Will um, will bring up children with developmental deficits. These kids will do worse at school. They will accumulate fewer skills. They will uh, uh, you know they will earn much less. They will be poor themselves, uh, and and this cycle continues. So the idea of you know building interventions is to try and uh, and break or mitigate that cycle. A lot of the work has its origins in the in the U.S. So to preface some of what will be discussed by Professor McGear next, I wanted to give a brief overview of the two studies he mentions for some context. Um, we don't go into specifics of them, but I just wanted to give a little bit. I think they're really interesting, and they definitely help when trying to understand what early childhood development interventions really are and how long they've been around for. So the first is the Perry Preschool Project, which was an experiment done in the 1960s. I don't have all the numbers right for any of these things, but I believe that this was 1962 to 1967. 
Do not quote me, these are approximate numbers. It was a Michigan-based study credited to David Wakehart and is seen as pretty transformative for early childhood development interventions. The group was made up of black children thought to be high risk for school failure, much of this having to do with their race, but also their family's income and other additional factors. And the goal was to research towards the aim of breaking the cycle of poverty and the experiment worked towards affecting IQ ratings specifically. We know now that IQ is not the best way to represent intelligence or the value of education, but that's what was used for this, and it still was pretty remarkable in what it did and, and what it was saying. So the other study mentioned is the Abecedarian experiment in the 1970s. It was performed in 1972 using a group of 111 children born from, I think, 1972 to 1977. It was very well controlled, which was one of the main critiques on the Perry Preschool Project. So of those 111 infants, 57 of them went through high quality intervention while the remaining 54 acted as the control group. The experiment consisted of educational games and theory for the experimental group and the age entrance averaged at under six months. The children in this experiment were deemed high risk because of maternal education, family income, and a ton of other other factors very similar to those of the Perry Preschool Project, but it was not purely using one race. Each child in the experimental group got six to eight hours a day of childcare, and follow-ups were done with the ages ranging from three to 30, not every single age, but they were ranging from three to 30. Both this one and the Perry Preschool Project did follow-ups midlife to see how the effects lasted, and they're still sort of being tracked. It's very hard to see how useful these projects are. So both of these experiments highlighted the social and economic aspects of both receivement of education and achievement from education. But they also highlighted the need to further develop early childhood development interventions. You have the Perry Preschool experiment in the 60s. You have the Abyssidarian experiment in the 70s and, uh, and, and much other work. But these are the two kind of flagships. Uh, now, in... Um, the questions that arise in a developing country context are, and in a place like the U.S. are not fundamentally uh, different. Kids are always the same. Of course, the, the available resources are different. Uh, so, for example, part of this has you know, motivated uh, Lyndon Johnson to introduce uh, Head Start. So Head Start is, is effectively an early childhood development program mm -hmm. in the U.S., which is actually quite quite successful and was inspired by the developing knowledge at that time on, on the on the positive impacts of uh, of intervening early so now you might say well why do we work in in developing countries and not in the us first of all uh, the although there there are important pockets of poverty in the us and it's controversial you know how much but you know but there are you know you see it in the streets you see it uh, everywhere in in countries like uh, you know india the extent of, of poverty is huge relatively and consequently the possible return to to having uh, programs that work you know early early intervention programs that that can be scaled up is is very large the other of course thing is that research in research in the us is 
also much more expensive in the sense that uh, the salaries of, you know, for any particular amount you might raise from uh, research funding organizations here like the NIH or, or the NSF, that fixed amount of money will take you much, much further in a place like India, where the salaries are very, very low, um, relative to a place like, like the US. In some sense, uh, uh, research tends also to be a little bit opportunistic in the sense that you, you, you know, you, you, you do what you, what you, what you can. But, you know, apart from that, I think it's got a, an important developmental element to it because the, the number of, uh, of children at risk of, uh, of um, underdevelopment is, is, is enormous in, in volume, if you like. In a place like India, in a place like China, where uh, experiments are being run now, not by me, but by people I know, and in many Latin American countries. Something that I'm curious about, though, because I was reading, I, w- I was reading about how you have been involved in, like you mentioned, other countries and just like wondering why the effects of these interventions can vary. So like I read about how Jamaica versus Colombia, there were different impacts that sort of lasted and then how these interventions, the impacts of them sort of did fade away over time in Colombia specifically. So I was just wondering like what yeah, you tell me. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, that's 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 a really good question, and uh, you know, the, these are kind of things that we we want to learn about. Of course, the devil is in the detail. You know exactly how the interventions are. Also, the populations are slightly different. So the target kids in Jamaica were uh, malnourished kids. So th- that's measured by by stunting by by the height, right? So. You know there is a you know there are percentiles in in the height distribution and if in the population you find let's say a very high proportion of of kids are at a percentile where in the U.S. you'd find say two percent of people then you conclude that that population is uh, you know has a a malnutrition problem a long run malnutrition problem because height at the very early ages of the first three years is kind of you know in, in driven by genetics but also driven by nutrition in other words. If you if you malnourish a very young child, they will become shorter than their genetic potential. So the the kids in Jamaica were selected to be basically uh, stunted mm-hmm. uh, and living in slums. So they are the absolute poorest of the poor, right? You know, it, it doesn't get much worse than than that. In Colombia, they were the normal poor, so they were not selected for stunting, right? So you might so you know you might speculate that the intervention works you know is is kind of more effective at the totally lower end mm-hmm. than uh, uh than the slightly better off or you can kind of flip it around and say well you know uh, uh, these other kids also have developmental deficits we know they do we measure it uh, but perhaps the kind of intervention that you would do there would be perhaps a little bit uh, different would be let's say more challenging you know perhaps as you go up the the scale of um, of deprived background, you know, as the, as deprivation kind of uh, declines a little bit, you know, you might want to, you know, you might want to to change your intervention in ways that we don't necessarily appreciate. You know, on the other on the other hand, you know, so th- there's another factor. There is a suspicion that sometimes these interventions fade out a little bit and then later come back. So, in other words, if you go and measure again in 10 years if you've got the research funding to do that then you you know you might find impacts that didn't look as if they were there when the kids are younger in other words the process of uh, of child development and evolution is um 
in some sense quite complex and uh, and it's kind of not linear so you know you might see things going away and then and then coming back and that partly happened in Jamaica as well so what I'm trying to say here is that you know you're, you're hitting upon uh, research questions that are not you know totally you know we don't know everything that's why we do, we do research um, and these are good questions yeah I had a different conversation with with a professor at Harvard, and we were diverging a little bit on our views about educational intervention in general. It was like very beginning of my research, and I sort of just prompted a question that I've been thinking about because to me, from an outside perspective, or I guess just someone who hasn't studied this for years and years, and I was doing some reading about adult literacy programs, these educational opportunities that come up later in life. I think that especially after reading your work and developing my opinions about when these integral things need to start forming, like things that can affect human capital and just how how you end up later. And I was just sort of confused about and curious about why adult programs are being created if early childhood intervention isn't whatever you do at the early phase you're not going to solve all the problems right you know the uh, these are very challenging populations mm-hmm. uh, depending where you are and, and and what's your context you might have abuse you might have uh, hunger you might have cultural difficulties and so on so you so so you you cannot transform um a very very challenging environment into um into something benign, let's say, you know, something that, you know, a typical, let's say, middle-class uh, U.S. kid would uh, uh, would find themselves. Um, so you're always going to have adults that um, that are going to do, that will have uh, needs, right? Remedial education, retraining, uh, you know, re, uh, redirecting their, their careers after, um, you know, uh, after displacement or whatever so so you know adult programs uh, can be important on the other hand they've typically not been extremely successful right. uh, so, sometimes i mean you know we have an experiment in colombia with youth mm-hmm. uh, people a little bit older than you say but not much right um from low-income backgrounds and the intervention consisted of you know putting these kids in the classroom for three months uh, teaching them something whatever they liked mm-hmm. uh, electronics it support hairdressing whatever tailoring whatever course mm-hmm. they, they chose and then uh, and then they would be placed in some kind of internship and they would work for another I can't remember three six months there and then they would get into the job market proper and you know that had you know quite quite spectacular effects and we've been following these kids now for uh it's it's an experiment so some people were randomly excluded uh so so there's a control group so uh you know we've been following them now for 10 15 years and uh you know the effects are totally persistent and they are great we also know that uh, welfare programs uh, reduce you know, improve outcomes for kids welfare programs on the parents improve outcomes for kids reduce crime for kids you know so uh, what i'm trying to say is that public policy as far as human capital is concerned should not just begin and start in the first two or three years of life they might be very effective then but that doesn't mean they've solved all the problems and that doesn't mean there's no role for Subsequent, so you know you want good quality schools, for example, right? You want uh, you want anti-poverty programs 
properly designed, of course, but you want anti-poverty programs, because not only because they support the parents, which, of course, is a good thing, uh, but it has implications for, for the kids as well. That's mm-hmm. another kind of topic of research that's, you know, that is being studied. But, uh, but there is, you know, there is quite a lot of evidence, for example, conditional cash transfer programs, programs that particularly in places like Latin America, they... Um, they they, they they give um, uh, money to families condition on the families doing some things that let's say the policymaker likes them to do typically send the kids to school uh, so kind of avoid child labor among teens take health checks things like that you know the, these programs have been shown to be you know very strong anti-poverty measures and they have been shown to have you know very good effects not just on the parents as I said on the kids in many dimensions including participation in crime and health you know so so I'm, I'm not sure what uh, Claudia Goldin said but you know uh, one one type of program should not be necessarily the exclusion of all others and mm-hmm. we should think of the process of human capital accumulation as a kind of a unified structure, right? That you know yeah. that that uh, addresses issues to do with uh, with kids from from before they are born, right? Because you know a lot of things happen in utero, but you know bad nutrition of the mother and so on, to when the child you know becomes an adult, and once they become an adult, then I still want to say, well, okay, what kind of programs? Uh, do I do I want to need there that are you know you don't want to distort the incentives but you know that that offer retraining or offer you know for opportunities so you know, discussing with a student yesterday you know suppose you have a, a massive environmental uh, intervention to to uh, to reduce production of fossil fuels let's let's suppose we eventually get to that stage well there are hundreds of thousands if not millions of people working in the in the fossil fuel industry what's going to happen to them, right uh you know it's fine to say you know we don't want global warming which of course we don't but you know you have to think of the entire policy space there right it's not enough to just throw people out of work you know you close a, you close a, a despised coal mine uh and you do nothing and you get um you know you get extremist politicians as a result right so right. but but that's possibly even secondary the important thing is that you know these people are trapped in in very bad parts of the country with very few job opportunities they know very little let's say they are in in mid to late 40s you know what do you do with that right you know so so the fact that you you put a lot of emphasis on on early programs does not mean you should not be thinking of uh, other policy programs Mm-hmm. Uh, policy problems, sorry. Professor McGeer and I turn the discussion from here on out more towards Beacon as it's the education I'm most familiar with and currently am part of. We discussed how these inequalities are present in my life and warning, he was kind enough to give me some compliments which only made the final cut because he was saying them as examples of privilege. Tell me about Beacon School. I can't remember, is it private or public? Um, It's a public school, but it's a... Selective, kind of... right? It's selective. Yeah, it's it... like star, right? A, a little. It's, you don't have to take tests to be admitted, but there's an essay and an interview. and it's... Yeah, Exactly. So the question is, what happens to the kids who don't get into Beacon and to Stai? What's the quality of education that they get? How good are the teachers there? I mean, I would probably assume, especially in New York City, 
it's not the greatest because those kids are often from the same neighborhoods and then it, you know, it keeps going and all that. Well, no, but perhaps we're not investing in these schools. Right, right. But uh, I, and I also like for Beacon specifically, a lot of the money does come from parents who are able to either donate money or not work and then raise exactly. money in different ways. Exactly. So it's an um, issue of where we invest. Right, right, right. And uh, so, so the, 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 the problem is that uh, children from low-income backgrounds are going to, first of all, they're going to build up deficits from very early on. Mm-hmm. They will have reading problems. They will have math problems. Here I am. I'm talking to you. You're super articulate. You know, you are, you know, you, 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 could, have been, you could have been a junior in college instead of a junior in high school. <laughs> Right. But other kids are not like that. They, you know, they have huge reading deficits. They have uh, can't solve a simple math problem uh, and that accumulates. And then what happens, you know, the teacher goes in and they go through a curriculum that nobody understands uh, because, you know, she's been told that that's what she has to teach. Right. So who cares? You know, nobody, nobody understands anything. They all clock off. They don't go to school. They go join some gang, whatever. I'm, okay, I'm giving extreme case. You know why? Because school is extremely boring. If you sit in a in a chair, you don't understand what the other person is telling you. You know you're not going to do very well. You're not going to be very engaged. Uh, you should see. You should look at the wire. Have you have you looked at the Have you seen the wire? No, I haven't. I've heard it's good. Yeah, it's amazing. It's a <laughs> it's a social science lesson, actually. Uh, if you or you can view it like that, although it's you know it's very entertaining. So and there is in the second series there is a, a thing about schools. It's extreme, but it does tell us right. Uh, so you know if if the kids go into school at say four or five and they already have deficits and nobody does anything about that. They're yeah. going to accumulate further deficits and could stay fall behind. And then nobody, no teacher will want to go in that school because it's it's very, very challenging to, to, to teach kids that uh, uh, that are left behind. And then as a teacher, you're evaluated on the basis of what you should have taught, but what you should have taught is irrelevant because nobody understands it, right? Nobody's going to understand calculus if they don't know how to solve a linear equation, right? Yeah. So, so... But we're not taking it seriously enough, right? We're not taking uh, education seriously. W- what we do is we we create some some uh, some schools like Beacon and uh, Bronx Science or whatever. We we cream skim the the best kids uh, from New York City. We put them there and we say, okay, if the others bye bye. Thank you very much, mm-hmm. right? And then we put these kids into the elite selective colleges. And and we're all happy. Uh, and and of course, uh, lower income people, you know, don't have much of a political voice either. So uh, so there you are. It's a matter. It's a matter of whether you whether one whether society takes seriously the uh, you know in, investment in, in in kids. If you go back historically to the U.S., the pre-war U.S. The U.S. was the first country to have uh, massive access to high school, right? You know, the huge high school boom, and this really uh, and teachers were very respected at the time. It was a, it was a, a it was a high status profession, right? Being a teacher was uh, was an important thing, and this underpinned the the huge growth of the U.S. and its primacy. And this is, you know, this is uh, not happening. There's uh, there's a lot of emphasis on elite education, which is 
probably the best in the in the world by far but below that it's a disgrace the disgrace of our of our uh, society it's that we you know we we don't really you know it's not a really big political issue how yeah. we educate the the even the lower middle class and the uh, and the poor that's at the heart of many of the things we many of the unpleasantries we see these days do you think you've experienced throughout your career of researching this and going to different places and things like that, building off of what you were saying, a cultural shift of how the importance of education is perceived? Because I feel like I, obviously I do go to Beacon and it's a place where I guess people sort of think that everybody is intellectually curious, but I don't find that that is the case all the time. And I've sort of found that I I don't really know that I believe that I agree with how everybody else sees education or what people think learning is now or the importance of it. And like a lot of the emphasis of learning in high school is so that you can go to an elite institution rather than like have a wonderful opportunity to have a lot of access to different teachers and books and great classes and things like that. So yeah, I mean, yeah. you're describing a, you're describing a, a, a rat race, but it kind of you know um, it it kind of goes together, doesn't it? I mean, um, yes, I mean particularly when, once you once you've arrived at junior or or, or uh, well, and beginning of senior, it's all about you know getting to the college. But um, but on the other hand, uh, you know there is an inf- infrastructure of knowledge that's being built, and that's uh, ultimately you know you look to be like a very curious person. That certainly is not going to prevent you from getting into college on the contrary so it kind of goes together but uh you know you're probably headed to the top five universities uh, but the problem the problem is not is not with people like you or you know and, and you might have classmates that are less interested but they're going to do fine right they're going to right. you know, pretty good college and they're going to get a pretty good job if they want it you know right. and uh, uh, and so on and so forth but the the, pro- the problem is that uh forget even even forget about people who who are going to go to college you know what does one know when they finish high school and and what what is their ability to learn and adapt at uh, uh, in in a workplace that is becoming uh, ever more demanding of flexibility than before you know we, right. we don't have the, the the manufacturing conveyor belts of of general motors anymore right you know we have a we have a, a very rapidly evolving uh, technology scene and uh, and so on and that requires flexibility and, educa- and good yeah. education if anything gives you flexibility to adapt so that's what's missing from the usual of course public schools are differ enormously right mm-hmm. i mean there's only about you know what is it 10 percent of kids go to private school I mean, you don't count as one of them. You 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 are in a public school. Right. That's the point I'm trying to make is that if you are forget about New York City, if you are in in Westchester, for example, there's a locally funded public school, right? It's effectively like a private school, right? Because it's very right. well resourced because the tax right. base is large, so they can and, and plus on top of they make all the donations and so on, which is right. great. But then suppose you go to uh you know to 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 uh, some some suburb of a of uh, Atlanta, no, or Atlanta inner city or something like that. You know, it's not going to be like that, right? right. So, uh, and and we don't have this structure in the U.S. where we have it partly, but not completely, where schools are funded by need, and need is not properly defined. So, so you know, you have kids that have lit- huge literacy problems at, at at quite an advanced age, or uh, or huge math problems, and of course they cannot function in a 
in a in a proper job, right? They will they will end up uh, flipping burgers, you know, and that's a big problem. And I'm not sure that this is exactly what you were saying, but I also think like right, you're you're right about that. It doesn't matter, I guess, to a certain extent. Like if everybody is intellectually curious, because we will end up at college, we will end up doing things that I guess most people want to do, or having jobs that are sort of higher up there. And I think because of that, people don't people who are like potentially going to be leading and creating policy and doing things like that aren't super aware of the idiosyncrasies of education because we have not experienced them. And I just mm-hmm. wonder how. I'm, I don't know that you would have the answer to this because it's more on the existential side, but I can't quite tell if I know in this cycle of education and poor education and who that affects and who benefits from it. I just can't tell like where the start is and where the end is to that cycle, but also like how, how would it be fixed? Does it start with education? Is that how you fix everything? Or like what we were mentioning before, you know, like you can't choose where you were born, what neighborhood you were born in, what your zone schools are like. And if everybody wants to their zone school that wouldn't change the fact that like in my neighborhood my zone school would be very well funded because of the people around them and the kids who are going to them that's the but that's the decision right you know right. so it doesn't have to be like that right uh, so the issue of you know building up well-functioning well-educated people of various different skills starts at the beginning of life with with uh, good nutrition and and good support for child stimulation and education but it doesn't stop there uh, so after that most kids uh, will end up in the public school system mm-hmm. and if we don't invest in that if we don't first of all if we don't start early and then and second if we don't invest in that and in some sense compensate for familial deprivation then we're going to have these uh, long-run structural inequalities where uh, there'll be a, a group of people left behind and you know then all the debates about minimum wage and uh, uh, welfare programs of course are useful but you know they are kind of almost beside the point because they you know, they can uh, they can just give some basic support, but they cannot change the life of people. I mean, that's in other words, you have to see the public policy towards education as a process that starts, be, you know, with pregnancy and uh, and ends, uh, you know, and ends with with college. Say, so, well, well, once you're in college, of course, that's. Would an increase in investment in public education in general would it get rid of the fact that there is inequality in who's in the student body? Because then, at that point, schools would be well funded enough that they they wouldn't need to draw from the parents at the school or the neighborhood that they're in to support education with a lot of resources. Why, why, why can't we? Why can't we have a, a tax system that funds it? Right. So would that would that be? I mean, in the U.S., we have some of the lowest taxes in the industrialized world. Right. Because it. I mean, I think it's yeah. interesting. Like we don't spend very much on education, and yet we wonder about things like innovation and like that. At the end, we got a little off track once I started mentioning the lack of innovation in our present-day Newton, which brings us to the end of this episode. I had a lovely time recording this, and I hope you had a lovely time listening. If you enjoyed this episode, go listen to the others on our website. Farewell until next time.